Hey, it's Melvin, one of your friendly neighborhood podcast hosts. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you're a longtime listener, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever. Reviews are the lifeblood of the podcast world, so if you want to help us out, it'll take only a moment of your time. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to Cinematic Doctrine. So, listener, you just put the freaking episode on. That's pretty exciting. Uh, that means you just missed a whopping 50 minutes of content where both uh, Stephen, Stephen is back on the podcast again. Stephen and I talked about our journey through movies. We talked about kind of the experience of our early interests with film. Uh, in the case of Stephen, cartoons, both of us uh, having a similar interest in Scooby-Doo, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I also, I think, watched some like early Christian VHSs. I didn't get into this in the episode, but stuff like that, which was pretty interesting. Um, there's like a, it's like an Explorers Club or something. I can't remember. There's like four of them. Um, but uh, we talked a bit about that. Talked about our transition into like high, middle school, high school interests when it came to movies. We had a um, section where we talked about horror movies and how we really engaged in horror movies and how sometimes when you, when you. F- I, this is probably recurrent for people as they get into hobbies anyway, but they dive so deep into it that they actually start wading into waters that are probably not healthy for them. So we talked even about our journey of uh, self-exposure to things that really just weren't helpful for us and how, how we kind of felt, how we feel about that now um, and name drop some things that clearly give us, uh, you know, film cred, but at what cost? <laughs> <laughs> and so you get access to that if you support on the podcast, $3 a month. Uh, you can go on to patreon.com slash cinematic doctrine to view all of the support tiers, different support tiers, net you uh, different personal perks, but most of them are roughly the same. It's usually you get to listen to podcast episodes early. They are uncut episodes, including content like the one I just talked about, the 50 minutes of that. Um, in other episodes, it's sometimes news that's going on, uh, although we always try to have a slant that makes it accessible, even if you listen to it a year later. Uh, or just other general topics of stuff that's been kind of going on. Um, again, $3 a month, pretty pretty simple. You also get to choose movies we review at the end of each month. Uh, it's usually a poll that comes up early in the month, and then by the end of the month, that option is selected for the general public to listen to. So you get to influence the show, which is pretty exciting. Um, we have other cool ideas for the podcast that we'd like to do, so supporting really helps out. Uh, we'll also be doing special episodes if we reach particular goals uh we're excited to do like a gods and not dead series uh, i think i just put the uh, an episode on the lowest rated worst marvel thing called the inhumans uh, which dan very eagerly wants to talk about i know it and i'm not making a joke about that so um <laughs> but either way will you really plus play though to tune into an episode on the seventh seal not to get advertised about a patreon thing that you can do and support but uh, guess what? We have Steven on again and not Daniel. We're going to do another Criterion episode. If you tuned in the last week, it was Stalker. This week, Seventh Seal. These are two pretty, pretty like pivotal, I feel like. And, and on the topic of our Patreon discussion of doing early movies, um, these two movies are pretty much early art house movies, not in reality, although Seventh Seal is early art house. Um, they are definitely two early art house movies that people usually 
dive into mm-hmm. um stalker being a much more difficult one i think <laughs> um although tonally seventh seal also difficult but before we get into that as i sort of tease the subject of seventh seal um steven why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself so general listeners know who you are and that you exist well i'm uh, i'm clearly the criterion channel hound that's uh running down your trail lately i think you have more releases too than i do I... Uh, we recently just swapped what our shelves look like and you had a ton of criterion movies not that it means anything it's just interesting it's just you've probably been buying more for years as i, I only really have started buying them recently i don't know man i i I might have more than you. Your recent haul of like what nine movies or something—that's <laughs> a lot. Like seven, um, six or seven, yeah. And <laughs> and you know, I I was really collecting Criterion uh, much later than I was collecting stuff like Scream Factory and Synapse Films and a little yeah. bit of Vinegar Syndrome and stuff like that. Uh, so I um I came to Criterion kind of late, but I I am a little bit obsessed with them, which is not a good thing because <laughs> not, not for the pocketbook, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I will say I prefer the channel, but there are certain releases you can't get on the channel. And those yeah, are the ones that really make you want to buy them. There are some <laughs> that I wanted that are out of print. So Diary of a Country Priest. I really wanted to get Diary of Country Priest because I like First Reformed. And I saw that uh, they're basically the same movie. <laughs> um, and I had never seen, uh, I forget his name. Bresson is his last name. I don't remember his first name. Hmm. But he's an early art house director. And... I saw that they had a Criterion release, but it's a DVD release like 15 years ago. It's totally out of print. Mm-hmm. So I had to get like a, uh, D- I had to get like a UK DVD release and it's fine, but it's <laughs> like, yeah, there's like, there's these like numbered releases that are just impossible to find even on Criterion. It's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, Criterion's pretty certainly, dope. certainly there, there are some early releases that, uh, they need to put back out, uh, for instance, John Woo's The Killer must be more accessible. Uh, I have an out-of-print uh, Blu-ray for it that I don't know how much money it goes for, but I wouldn't sell it. <laughs> uh, it's too good a movie to do that. Uh, I've never seen John Woo's Hard Boiled because Criterion released the DVD, and I haven't found a good copy since. So uh, I've never had that DVD, never seen the movie, but I must uh, so they have yeah. to release it. One of the best posters too. Yeah. <laughs> that poster is great. It's a, literally a, for those who haven't seen it, it's a hard boiled cop holding a baby and pointing a gun at you. Yes. <laughs> it's like the coolest cover. Yes. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, and it's a Hong Kong action movie. Nothing gets cooler than Hong Kong action movies unless it's so a film cool. noir movie. Now, along those same lines though, we're talking about a very early uh, spine number for Criterion. I believe this is spine yes. number 11. Yes, this is spine number 11. It's the earliest I have. Uh, and for good reason. I mean, it's also like the earliest, earliest, I think, cultural, worldwide accepted art house movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. most art house movies, I feel like you can find earlier ones. Like technically Freaks is pretty art house. Yeah. Um, but like, that wasn't like a cultural touchstone. Whereas like seventh seal is definitely, I mean, massive. This is mass. This is a massive. Movie. Yes. I mean, really it's the 1950s that give birth to the idea of, um, world cinema and 
that being a part of the art house movement in the United States eventually. When you're talking about freaks, uh, it's fun. It's so funny because I think you and I at one point talked about art house movies as like, you know, sometimes it's just people trying to throw up a bunch of uh, transgressive content and yeah, calling yeah. it artistic. Um, yeah, exactly. And wow, this movie is so brave. Yeah, I can't believe that actor literally injured themselves yes. to do something while naked. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's not brave. <laughs> <laughs> that's just really silly. But you know what? Like, uh, Freaks, uh, on the subject of Freaks, though, Freaks is very artistic and very wonderful, but it's also very exploitation. So it's in exploitation. I... And uh, we're going to have to do an episode on this really because I actually hand. don't feel that way. Okay. <laughs> I actually I, feel Freaks is, I guess we're doing a brief aside on Freaks. Uh, I, uh, I feel that movie is one of the most kind and caring movies while simultaneously like being a good horror movie. Cause, cause I think it's easy to, to claim horror as exploitative, but I don't, I don't, I just, I, I, I finished Freaks and I literally audibly went, wow that's yeah. what i said at the credits i threw my hands in the air and went wow that was amazing i i i just i so we're gonna have to do an episode on that yes. look forward to an episode on freaks everybody because <laughs> and, and, i and, have feelings about this <laughs> yes yes and, and i will i will say it is a beautiful movie a wonderful movie and at the same time uh, I think it can be beautiful and also exploitation. No, exploitation no, no. cinema. <laughs> I'm talking about the genre. We are converting <laughs> this now to a freaks episode. <laughs> this, there's no way. Hey there, it's your friendly neighborhood call to action. Just checking in on you. Hope you're doing all right. I'm just stopping by to say, you know, if you enjoy the show, you can always subscribe and write a review for Cinematic Doctrine. There's iTunes, Podchaser, basically anywhere you listen. You can give us a shout out with a thumbs up, five stars, gripping positivity. Or if you hate the show, you can say that too. Wait, what? What are you saying? Why are you saying that? Well, I'm not going to tell them what to do, Ted. They're free to do what they want. Our analytics say we got a lot of listeners in the U.S. and you know they love their freedoms. And you're also free to check out our Twitter. Very active there. We host polls, memes. There's also the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group called Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group. If you want to join, just answer the questions, read the rules, and tell them the podcast sent you. Also, you should check out our website. Some really cool stuff there. Editorials, written reviews for movies we haven't had time to cover. Always check out cinematicdoctrine.com when you get the chance. Oh, uh, Ted also told me I shouldn't forget to mention the Patreon. Something about you can support us or something? Wait, Ted, I thought this was like a hobby thing. You it's want me to... expand cinematic doctrine. You know right, this already. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I forgot. I'm the one who put all this together. Yeah, cinematic doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can gain access to early uncut episodes of the podcast. Oh, and did I mention you get to tell us what to do? That's right. Each month you get to vote on a movie we discuss on the show. Anyways, I gotta run. So, I'll see you guys later. Well, okay, then let me, let's get into this. So, uh, Seventh Seal, filmed by Igmar Bergman, uh, 1957, I believe. Yes, 97 minutes. I'm just going to read the back of the, uh, the back of the criteria release. I'm not going to do that. Um, this is, like we've stated briefly, but it is like more or less considered the first culturally worldwide accepted art house movie. It's 
it's it's kind of the first movie to uh, I I tuned into the I, I watched the movie three days ago and then today I tuned into a commentary with Peter Cowie that was recorded in like I think 1985 and there's just some context clues too because he talks about the AIDS epidemic so so it's uh, very interesting <laughs> to tune into a commentary that's not the director or actors or producer but they taught he talked a bit about how it was sort of the first time a movie so overtly talked about death. Um, the premise of this film, the opening of the film is a knight and his squire are resting on a beach and the beach isn't even sand. It is just rocks, smooth rocks, but it was just rocks and it's quite beautiful. Uh, and then the night when he wakes up to wash up, he sits down at a chessboard and it's just sort of random boards and pieces. You imagine he played with the squire, but then he looks forward and there's a man all of the sound cuts and there's a man in a black cloak with a white face and he introduces himself as death. The knight says, is it my time? And he's the death says, yes. And then we get our first joke actually, where the knight says, I hear you like chess and the death goes, how did you know? (laughs) Yes, I do like chess. And he says, well, I've heard here and there. And so they play chess. Um, And yeah, right away, pretty good joke. Um, This is like, uh, obviously been imitated a thousand times. Uh, Bill and Ted bogus journey uh, has them play chess. Um, And it's really, it's, it's great. Um, And uh he, as they play chess, the knight offers to say, if I win, you leave me alone. But if you win death, you can kill me. And death agrees. And an interesting aspect to it isn't that they just keep playing chess. It's actually that they start playing and you don't even actually see them play yet. They have only just set the board. And then the knight walks over to the squire to wake him up from his rest. The squire gives him a scowl. So you know that their relationship is a little contentious, but the, he's still respectful because the squire follows him away. So begins our journey as these characters move towards death, essentially, as the movie (laughs) is these two men have returned from the Crusades, 10 years of the Crusades. They've survived the Crusades, uh, which are horrible, by the way. And when they return, the Black Plague is currently just devastating the countryside, while the the knight, his name is Antonius Block. The knight has had an actual interaction with death. The squire, in trying to get directions, doesn't realize he's interacting with a corpse until you get a dramatic shot of that corpse. Um, the other set of characters were introduced to as they travel by, and I didn't notice this the first time, but they actually walk by these characters without interacting with them, and the camera stays on them. It is a traveling troupe of uh, clowns. Um, the three of them, two of them are married with a child. And then the third one seems to just be the director at the time. And um, even they have interactions about death, which is very (laughs) interesting. Uh, The one character, Joff, the husband has visions and he sees a vision of the Virgin Mary carrying uh, what's assumed to be baby Jesus. Uh, And he tells his wife, his wife says, Oh, your visions. They're just like the time that we woke up and the wheels were painted red. And then we found out there was, red paint beneath your nails and so uh the wife is being kind to him but not believing him and uh which uh gives a good i think dramatic irony for the audience to figure out are the visions real or not um and that's later utilized uh to help propel the story which is great and uh yeah it it's an interesting set of characters but it's easy to see how um all of them represent something in response to life and death. And as the story progresses, that is constantly at the forefront, life and death, life and death, the various forms of existence in life and how death is this 
unavoidable, unescapable, wholly indifferent, non, I would say almost non-spiteful act that death just is present um, throughout the, the film. Um, before we get into specifics and before I pass it over to you, I will say I did not, re- I've seen this movie years ago, but I barely remember it. I barely remembered it until this rewatch. I did not remember the movie was as funny as it was. I'm not out here saying it's a comedy or anything, but the movie is really quite funny um, with some absolutely great lines of dialogue that are benefited by how harsh some of the stuff is. <laughs> and I wouldn't necessarily say the movie's cynical, although Ingmar Bergman, who isn't cynical, is not uh, a Christian. There's a lot of Christian themes in the movie, but the uh, commentary, the end of the commentary track states that Igmar Bergman, when asked about death, gave a straight answer saying, at some point he grew to have contentment in believing that there's literally nothing after death. Mm-hmm. Nobody above or below cares. And at death, you stop existing. So that's the worldview we're kind of working with here. And it's peppered in with a very big cynicism of the church. Not, I wouldn't say like, I think people nowadays you hear church and they think if they're tuning into our podcast, probably Protestant church. No, we are talking about like the church as an institution, man, I'm not helping it here by even saying institution. This is set during the Catholic church in the middle, in the middle ages. And it's actually got some pretty reasonable, realistic depictions of the church, such as there's a scene where a woman is tied and she's probably been drugged, (laughs) frankly. Um, And they're saying that she is the one who slept with the devil and caused the plague. So when we kill her, the plague will stop. And there are scenes where characters are, um, there's a scene where it's set up in a painting that people will flog themselves as though to clean off their own impurity. So uh, I forget what the term is for that. Self-flagellation. Um, self-flagellation. Um, and a penance, you could even say, that uh, you are preemptively punishing yourself for your sins so that you can take away the punishment of sin. Um, in other words, playing God. Uh, so you can understand how that's not actually reasonable. But they would be literally, it's like a, it's like a, let's call it a, uh, um, July 4th parade of just the most horrible visuals, really, really frightening visuals. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm talking like some of the, because uh, Bergman sets up his characters in ways that um, I'm doing it, man. I'm just talking. Uh, Bergman <laughs> sets up his characters like he's painted them. And so they will be in still positions with the camera holding on them. And this particular scene where the procession comes through of the church which would actually just spread the plague uh, because they were plagued people. Um, it's really frightening. Um, and so the whole, f- like, and, and all of this is built around the fact that his particular upbringing was not good in terms of his experience with the church. And you can tell that he's very cynical about the church. Um, the character who is a seminarian who tells the knight and the squire to go to the crusades is now a thief robbing dead bodies and tries to rape a woman. No, the, mov- the movie is not graphic, but the movie is <laughs> contextually terrifying. Yes. Um, and uh, so his perspective of the church, and I think faith is cynical, but this is where the character of Antonius Block is most beautiful because he is a character who, uh, in a scene, that, two scenes I think in particular made me weep. Um, one, uh, take a shot when Melvin mentions that he cried during a movie. One, <laughs> Stephen's out here getting ready. Um, <laughs> one is a scene where Antonius Block is not n- unknowingly lamenting to, 
Melvin's mind goes, am I talking too much? I'll pass it over after this. I promise. And cut, <laughs> you can just cut me off when this happens. But the first scene um, is where Antonio's block, our agnos- agnostic character, is lamenting to unknowingly death, but believes it's just a monk at a church saying, um, what about the people who want to believe but can't? And he's just lamenting, like, I want to believe in God and goodness and savior and 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 death being and life having meaning, but I'm having hardship in doing it. And it's just beautiful because then in the end he also has resolve to find out the truth. Um and then a later scene where he's just content in joy. Um, and I'll let you describe that scene yourself when 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 you're share when it's your turn to share, which will mm-hmm. be now. Um <laughs> but those two scenes in particular really help ground the movie into having some levity, of which the film is very funny, but uh, a necessary levity to a topic that is perpetual because death is constantly at the forefront of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but again, I have clearly shared that I like this movie. I don't think it's <laughs> the best movie I've seen. I'm not going to give it a 10 out of 10. I could be convinced. I think it's more nine out of 10 for me, but it is a very beautiful at times and very wonderful. And know, maybe I'll give it a 10. I haven't letterboxed it yet, but Steven, <laughs> 10 minutes later. Uh, I'm alive. Uh, <laughs> still alive and still existing. Um, what did you think about Seven Seal, man? I guess I kind of spoiled it earlier, but you had literally not seen this movie. Yeah. Which I... is crazy for a film guy, <laughs> but like... I know. But and... How was your first experience with this movie? I'll start with that. How was this How was this for you? Well, uh, we had just put uh, our baby down to sleep, and um, usually that's the time where Sarah and I... Uh, sort of unwind from the long day, we'll go back into the living room. And lately we've been putting on an episode of Stranger Things. Uh, specifically, this this night would have been season four. And we were so tired and we, we drug ourselves over to the, um, to the living room and sat down and I put on a Swedish art film about <laughs> death. Well, yeah, you want to relax with this movie on, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think she sat and uh, so watched funny. TikToks while I did this. Um, and <laughs> so she's um, she had a good time separate from me. This is together alone time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> some of the best time in marriage. It's, it's very important for a marriage. Um, but <laughs> this, this freaking movie, man... Um, I was not prepared for how really legitimately funny it was. Yeah, it's it's, it's really great. There's literally a Looney Tunes scene where the man is in the top of a tree and death is <laughs> yes! sawing the bottom of the tree. Yes, yeah. This image of <laughs> what death. What are you doing cutting down my tree? Yes. Well, it's your time. Can't you wait a little longer? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so funny and it's so matter of fact yeah tonally you, you're talking about tone this movie's a challenge for tone man because you will have terrible scenes like you just described and then these looney tune scenes or scenes of of guys singing body songs or um uh people you know these actors uh playing like clowns on yeah. stage um it's a very specific kind of humor and each character has his his or her own different type of humor. Yeah, very much so. So I I have to say I liked it. I mean, like, what am I going to say? Like I'm a film guy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, am I (laughs) going to say like the seven seals overrated and, you know, Bergman's actually pretty boring, you know? I mean, (laughs) every film bro who's mostly into, um, 
Marvel movies. That's their response. Uh, and not to belittle Marvel movies, whatever, you know. I get what you're saying, though, because this movie, as much as it is a tonal mess, it's also expertly handled. I find that the tone is quite balanced. It's measured. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. Um, but if you're coming from blockbuster movies, this is really weird. Like, this is extremely weird. And, mm-hmm. it, and I think, like, we have an interesting experience right now where because movies are so blockbustered, where, like, even, like... I mean, we always mention on the podcast, the dark universe was trying to be a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like converting classic universal horror horror monster properties into a universe. Um, It's so homogenized. And then you have a movie like The Seventh Seal, where it probably appeared at a similar time of like total homogenization. And then this movie comes out in 1957. And it's like, characters are essentially just representations of particular things mm-hmm. <laughs> probably probably just people in bar bergman notes yeah <laughs> and just meditating on like wow everyone's gonna die let's think about that yeah and like that's really strange i don't know if you kind of felt that a little i know yeah, you, um, i know we like horror movies so people die all the time yeah but that kind of dying is different <laughs> but this this has weight to it um yeah uh in a way that your slasher movie doesn't have weight on death normally yeah yeah, Uh, yeah, i mean good slasher movies will but the seventh seal puts a weight on death that is actually actually makes the viewer try to grapple with the idea that they're going to die one day too yeah and if if you're going through kind of a dry spell with like some of your uh, your your faith experiences. Uh, I I've been kind of going through that to a degree, not not to a you know lose the faith kind of thing, but you know you're just a little dry and it happens. I completely and, understand. That. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. That that being said, like that's when you when you have that and you watch a movie like this, it is it's validating to a degree um, because even though Bergman t- turned out to be an atheist during this period of his career and his life, he really was struggling with the idea of, you know, wanting to believe, uh, and yet really struggling with the silence of God, um, when he wanted to believe. And yes. Yeah. You know, as Christians, obviously we have answers for that. And we have, we have our canned apologetic messages, but you know, and, and they're, they're good answers. I mean, these, these answers have been around for 2000 years. Of course, of course, they're going to be good answers, but we also had to admit that it's a good question and emotion goes along with that. It's, it's not, um, it's not that they're right. It's not that, you know, Bergman is right to struggle with this, but there's an emotion that goes along with it and you have to be sensitive to that. You know, Chesterton often talked about when you're having a conversation with somebody about God who's who's an unbeliever, you have to bring both a sword and a trowel. You have to be able to defend yourself with the sword, but use the trowel to build the person up as well. And there's something in this movie about that. I, we can talk a little bit later about as to whether this movie is ultimately hopeful, uh, ultimately nihilistic, or uh, whether like this is a quote-unquote Christian movie. 
I personally feel that it, it's it's very appropriate for a Christian to watch, and it's something that most Christians probably should sit down and grapple with for a while. At least conceptually. I mean, it's yes. always good to think on death. Um, yes. I, which it might be strange, but death is the curse given by God. Mm-hmm. And so what what is more pressing than knowing death is in the way? Like, uh, And so it's uh, – yeah, it's definitely useful to meditate on it and find some grapple of find some foundation that you land on that helps you function because some people don't know they're thinking about death in how much they labor over work or how much they labor over relationships and stuff like that or maybe they have um uh maybe they have small types of deaths in their life that they're afraid of so the end of things um that they they fear and seventh seal definitely like yeah um seventh seal puts everybody at the forefront where no matter what state no matter what time no matter what class no matter matter what status uh no matter what activities death is there um it's present it could happen now it could happen later and that's just really important to be aware about um yeah and it's not exactly wrong to to have thoughts about that have meditations on that mm-hmm. um on your on your comment on whether or not this movie's hopeful or not i i find it interesting because joff does have the vision of seeing the virgin mary so i wonder mm-hmm. if at the time that signifies bergman's particular agnosticism at the time mm-hmm. which obviously it's clear that at the end he probably chose not to believe but in this particular case, the movie, for me, comes across as indifferent like death, where it's more just exploring two things that are known to be true, human life and all the variations of that mm-hmm. and death yes, <laughs> and all the things that happen with that. Because, um, th- I mean, this is something even like talking about belief and faith. I mean, faith functionally is the belief, the f- a belief that affects your function, your daily functions in something that cannot be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, what we believe in, it wouldn't be faith. It would just be real, right? Like mm-hmm. it would just be, and and that's not me implying that the Bible and God and Christ's love are not real. It's I have faith in those things to be real. Mm-hmm. I just don't see it. And but there is a unique stress to not having specifically God you know, call me on my phone and tell me that it's him and I just believe him and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who spent time away from their someone they love loves getting letters or having phone calls, but it's, it's, it's just totally different from being with each other. It mm-hmm. really is. Uh, my time at inpatient was really healthy for me and good, but being away from my wife was completely different to what I was just used to. And I think that the stress that Antonius Block is sharing where he's talking to death and he doesn't know it, he's talking to the the monk at the church. He goes, he's like, uh, I think, I think death asks him, what does he want? And he goes, I want knowledge. Mm -hmm. I want knowledge. I want to hear God or I want to be told he's not there. I just need to know. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I just need to figure this out. And even later on, he's asking, there's a scene later on in the film where the woman who was tied to the church, probably drugged, blamed for the plague, she reappears and she's now more lucid and Antonius Block leans into the cage that she's locked into. Um, and it, it it's quite similar to the church scene, frankly. Um, he is saying like, uh, did you see the devil? And she goes, what makes you want to know? And he goes, why, who would know more about God than the devil? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is an interesting um 
I would say immature, but not poor choice of question. Because who else to know stuff about spirituality than someone else in the spiritual realm? Um, But it's it's endearing, and of course the the girl kind of plays along with him. But he's in full on belief of like I think there's something there, and I need to know. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the scene, he doesn't get an answer, and it it kind of continues and labors. Yes, and and. I really think that if we're really going to break down this movie, the best way to do it uh, is through the characters because well, yes, yes, these, yes, 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 these characters. Okay. Um, They're this very is gonna, deep. This is going to sound like a roundabout way to go about it, but film is a medium you have to sell. You know, there's a reason it's called show business. There's a business yes. to it. Or the film industry. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> Bergman is not just an artist. Bergman's also a businessman. Bergman intentionally puts characters in this film that are going to make you want to re-watch the film several times because every character goes through a journey in this movie or they stay static, but in a very fascinating way. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting or it would be interesting, I, I think. Uh, having only seen this movie once, I was trying to see it through everybody's eyes and see it through, you know, my own lens and everything like that, and try to figure out, okay, what's what's this movie saying, and how can I interpret the movie with the idea that maybe the artist is dead afterwards? I, I'm I'm going through that, but it'd be really fun to go back and watch this movie through every different character's eyes because. The penultimate scene, when death comes for Antonius Block and his friends, everybody has a different reaction, and everybody gets to talk. Talking about the scene at the at the castle. At the yeah. castle. At yeah. the castle. Right before. Right before. Uh, is it? Um, oh, uh, Yoff. Uh, who is the uh, Yoff and the his clan. wife have have run away? Yeah, escaped because Yoff has a vision. He sees death in a vision. Yes. Although it's arguable that it's not a vision, it's actually just death revealing himself because Yoff is going to die soon. And so he tells his wife, "Like I see death. We need to go." Yes, and um, yes. So they run away, and and they've so they've run away, and Antonius and all of his uh, uh, his other friends are with him at this at this castle that Antonius owns and you know they hear a knock at the door and death appears and death has come for all of them all of the people in that castle are about to die and everybody the, the it's it's amazing because i believe it's one take uh, I don't know, or it, it's a single shot. I think it is because the camera pans across the crowd. Yes, yeah. everybody, you get to see everybody's face. They all get to speak about what they're thinking in the moment. And yeah. really the the thing that got me thinking, I need to watch this movie several more times, <laughs> is the, uh, uh, I can't even remember the character's name, but she's the young lady that Jons, the uh, the squire, she basically no steals for his wife. Yes, she has no name. It, it's her final line and her reaction that makes me want to go back and watch the movie because her reaction. We can spoil this. It's you know sixty five years old, something like that. <laughs> You've seen it before. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> if you haven't seen it before, cut it off right now and go watch it right now. 
you can yeah. come back to this podcast. You can save podcasts. Podcasts should be downloaded. That's better for yes. Melvin's podcast anyway. Do it. Download yes. the movie. The the movie Thank podcast. Um, having said that, <laughs> this character's reaction is to stare death uh, in the face, smiling slightly with light coming through a window onto her face. And she's, she says, it is finished because she has led such a terrible life um, throughout the movie and before the movie. We, we yes, get the sense more, of what yes. her movies, of what her life is about. We see her on her knees saying it is finished. She is welcoming death. Everybody else is either stubbornly accepting it or they're going through uh, different emotional reactions. Or somewhat not even like uh, some uh, like a uh, plog and his wife, Lisa, mm-hmm. um, who are the mo- most mostly just cartoonish characters, more or less act like it's just another stranger. So it yes. sort of asserts like some for some people like death is like strange. Yeah. They don't even think about it. They don't know it when it happens. And then it just sort of passes by. And by that point, it's too late. Yeah. You don't even understand the effects. And so, so he's this, he, Plog is this, and with the most funny name in the entire yeah, movie. Yeah, Plog. Uh, Plog. <laughs> uh, it's like and a Tim he's, and he's very funny, great yeah. actor. That guy is, he looks funny, he acts funny, he's just, he delivers his he's lines great. so well. Um, yeah. And his wife uh, is just, you know, she's this kind of Swedish blonde bombshell uh yeah. that she sleeps around <laughs> yes yes uh she sleeps around uh and it's it they're they are these very funny characters they might actually be funnier than the cl- literal clown characters um yes uh yes and and you know they're they're ending up um you know they end up back together uh lisa seems near the end of the movie just absolutely miserable because uh, she just yeah. doesn't speak. She's just silent. And Plog is off. just going about, you know, kind of hunky-dory. Uh, yeah. And that's the same thing with this last interaction as well. She is silent and grave. Meanwhile, he's just like, it's just another dude. Hey, dude, how you doing, bro? Yeah. Here's my <laughs> wife. Wife, curtsy for the man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like really yeah. silly. Yeah. Don't you tell your wife to curtsy for all the other men who uh who, who come <laughs> see you. Especially death. Yeah. Especially death. Um yeah, and then Antonius Block is panicking. He's he's praying and he's covering his faith. He's he's very terrified. He's saying, like, God, if you're there, please have mercy, please have mercy. Yes. And then his uh his squire mocks him and God, arguably, by mm-hmm. saying, like, whatever. Like it doesn't matter. I go and I I'm against this. May I have may I go out basically victorious in this moment and as victorious as i lived or whatever to which uh antonius block's wife tells him to be quiet and he yes. delivers probably the last funny line of the movie which is i'll be quiet but in protest yes. <laughs> and, it's, and yeah. it's really quite great the commentator proposed that uh antonius block is agnosticism whereas uh yeah i always forget the squire's name but the squire it's Jones. is Jones, that's right. Um, his his particular line and belief is more hedonistic, of just like exist in the moment, yes. do what's best, do what you like. That he, kind of he's thing. a very hedonistic. Uh, he's stridently atheist, or maybe not even atheist. He's just he doesn't care. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think hedonism's a really good uh, pinpoint for it. And Block is a very interesting kind of agnostic. In the, you know, 
generally, I'm just going to make a complete generalization of agnosticism uh, uh, as I have experienced it. So this is not a this is not the full spectrum of agnosticism throughout the world and everything like that. This is just Stephen's experience, which is the only thing I can go off of. Um, most agnostics, to me, kind of have a point of view that's pretty similar to Jon's in that they kind of they either don't know and don't want to engage in it or they just don't care. Mm. Antonius I would argue is 2 inches from Christian. He's 2 inches from Christian and that those yeah. 2 inches to him need to be covered by specific revelation by God. He believes in him enough that Block's first scene, the first scene is him praying, and his last scene is him praying. It is a bookend of his character. The first yeah. thing, the first thing that Block does is wake up, stretch, splash himself with water at the very beginning of the movie, and, and then, pray. then yeah. and then he prays. Same thing at the end. Not splashing, not waking up, but praying and begging. Um he wants he wants to know God. He knows death is coming for him. He doesn't want death to come. But ultimately, that being said, he's just he is a very interesting character because he wishes he didn't believe, but he does. Yeah, that's a good way to put and it. And even as a full on Christian, even as a full on Christian, I have times where I'm like that. You know, I would, you know. Sometimes I wish I could just not believe or not be a Christian for this for this short time so that I could, you know, be cool with committing this sin or be cool with cheating on, you know, and I, I'm not even like actually talking about things that I've done. But people, a lot of people are kind of like, you know, uh, why don't I just pretend I'm not a Christian for a while so I can cheat on my taxes? Why don't I yeah, pretend like, not, I'm not a Christian <laughs> for now just so I can you know, just, just steal this money that's right here, you know, cause yeah. I could, um, everybody has moments like this, but his torment him to the degree that he is not, he's not really able to function as a joyous being, which ultimately is what we're called to do, right? We're supposed to be joyous beings. And he's, he's unable to do that because this question, this these two inches that he's away from Christianity, this this just torments him and tears him up. And you were talking about his scene with um, Yoff and his family, uh, which is the sweetest scene in the entire movie. Talk a little bit about that. It's beautiful. Yeah, so there's a scene. Um, well, before I do, I'm turning on my air conditioner. It's hot. It's been an hour and a half without it. I'm turning it on. It might affect the audio quality, but, but yes. Yeah, so this scene in particular, and again, listener, uh, thanks for weathering with the air conditioner. Uh, it is just, it's just brutal. Um, we are recording of the week that it was like 90 degrees up in the Northeast. It's, it's wicked. Um, I guess it's not as hot as it was 90, but still anyways. So this particular scene is, uh, it's, um, Joff has just been, uh, uh, well, he's been harassed at a bar. Mm -hmm. It's uh, actually leading into that scene. It's pretty great because he has characters. Uh, Bergman has random people just talking at the bar, talking to each other about like still enjoying themselves at the bar, but they're talking about serious issues like death and the plague. And some of them assert that they're afraid, very afraid. And other ones don't. 
and some of them talk about judgment day and stuff and it's very like natural it's like stuff people talk about now with like covid and other things it's crazy crazy how things don't really change that much no matter how many years it's been and um joff returns um to see that his wife and uh, the knight antonius block have been talking and block is really it's it's sort of um there's something kind of interesting um in the in the commentary i'm gonna get his name again peter cowie proposed that bergman likes to use the ocean to kind of represent a sense of serenity and uh, cleansing and sort of a piece of piece of peaceable state a new birth sort of state and it's actually every scene where they're kind of near the water the water is visible that it's quite <laughs> freeing and joyful and i'm pretty sure in this particular scene too there's water there's definitely water in the beginning and the end the ocean in particular and um, if not water, then there's at least just a beautiful Syrian landscape. And that's that's definitely significant. But in this scene, Antonius is talking to um, Joff's wife. I believe her name is Mia. And they're just talking about Mia's child, Michael. And he's just living his life. And they're excited. They're joyful for him. Um, Joff comes over and he's just been harassed. So he goes to his wife for help. But then Joff sees Michael and he immediately feels elated and joyful again. And so there's definitely this like humanistic positivity to the movie that even though it's constantly about death and constantly proposing like the, the, the unique stress of, of Gnosticism, there's still a joy about new life. Stephen made a joke about does the opening shot of the bird in the sky that doesn't seem to move evidence of the lack of life that exists in life during the cosmos. See, you didn't like, realize, sort of but joke um, that, that was actually a serious thing. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Okay. Well, even so there's still a sense of like that paired alongside the unmistakable joy of romance, love and marriage. I mean, part of what makes Joff and Mia so, so enjoyable in this movie is that they're so endearing. Um, in the beginning when Mia just says she loves Joff, Joff pauses. It literally gives him pause and he looks at her and it's just very, very sweet and romantic. They're, they're great. These performers are great. The actual performers, not the characters that are performers, but <laughs> although the characters are great too. And uh, in this scene, it kind of culminates with everybody getting together, every cast of characters that's there so far. Um, so this is pre-Plog. <laughs> Pre-Plog <laughs> has not joined the party yet. They all sit down to have a meal. They eat some strawberries. They have um, milk. And it's basically like a communion scene. It's really quite mm -hmm. beautiful. And, and uh, as they're all talking, Joff gets his leer and he starts playing his lyre. And uh, it's a beautiful scene where just Joff is quietly playing the liar as Antonius Black ruminates on the fact that like he's going to remember this moment. It'll be the moment that gives him peace and comfort and joy. And um it's it's like heartbreaking because it's so present with death. Like even in the way the framing is is as Antonius is talking about his life to Mia, in the background is Joff playing the Lear and then right behind that is this mask that they have that is of a skull it's death so in the background death is always there um but as he's doing this he's still like positively remarking on how beautiful and wonderful this particular moment is and i think that's something that like is so paramount and important to movies that want to be about death and that's why i don't think this movie is in particular cynical um because i don't think this even though the movie is 
funny. And the movie's jokes sometimes are about things that are very horrible. Like one of the jokes, it's not even a joke. It's just a line, but it popped a laugh out of me and my wife is after John saves uh, the nameless girl from a a man who's going to sexually assault her. He goes outside to cool off and she just follows. And then he just like aggressively tries to kiss her and she pushes him away. And then he just goes, you know, I could have raped you, (laughs) but I didn't. And it's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) But like, it's so off the cuff and so bizarre that it's like clearly played as a joke about a time period where everything was just horrible. And it's like, hey, I saved you from something horrible. That means I've saved your life after you saved mine. (laughs) It's like, you horrible person. And yet he's still one of the most charismatic characters. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's probably because his worldview is so much on his sleeve as he narrates and carries through the movie. Even he's there at the scene as Antonius is just monologuing and it's just beautiful Um, to the point that he feels more determined and prepared when he goes to play uh, chess with death. Of course, death then starts talking about how he's aware of Antonius's party, including Mia, Joff and Michael. Mm-hmm. And that worries him, but it's a, uh, it really is like this movie where it, it's constantly aware of itself and its own subject death, but also aware of all the other things. Like why is death so disruptive death? I've, I've read from a, I don't remember this is years ago, so I don't remember the Christian author, but they were positing how death shouldn't be treated like it's natural. We shouldn't just say death is normal oh. because death functionally is abnormal. Mm-hmm. Everything about life the, the existence of death and entropy makes no sense. It really doesn't make sense. Um, yes, you could argue, well, it makes sense because all forms of energy transform into energy uh, that possibly can't be used. And it's like, but if it's still energy, why can't it be used? And it's like, because it's gone. It's something, death has been introduced into the world and, and things crumble and chaos exists. And that's unfortunate. And the movie wrestles with that. Now, there is a contentment to it at the end as each character responds to it, reacts to it. And even the woman who has been pining for death, the the nameless woman, she's like, I just am ready. It is finished. She's excited. She's elated. And to a sense, there is truth and not necessarily anything wrong about that too. I know that there's stories about people who have had relatives on hospice and they've been on hospice forever and it's been stressful and it's been miserable and they love them but it's been terrible. And when they finally die, they're not really sad because they've been sad for months mm-hmm. or maybe weeks. They're over that. Now they're relieved because it's like, okay, like now I can move to the next stage and I've been waiting to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, what's really quite enjoyable about the movie is despite its comedy and harsh comedy, it's never mean about these things, about oh, no. hardship, about pain about suffering this is a very gentle movie when it comes to the subject of death yes it's not so gentle to the things bergman doesn't like well, like the church but well, here, here's, <laughs> maybe we should segue into some of the uh criticism of the church to a degree but it, it is it is very gentle about the subject of death even when death is right in people's face and and that scene you're describing is just it's just so wonderful. It's it is really one of the one bits of reprieve from this sort of never ending war that's going on uh between Block and his doubt. Uh it, yeah. because and he even says, I will take this as a sign. 
And afterwards, he's, you know, there's still stuff to go. There's still stuff that challenges his conception of whether God exists or not. But at the same time, he goes forward a little bit more stridently in the column of faith as opposed to unbelief. After this scene, there is a change that occurs because the you know not too long after this scene, we, and you described the scene where um, uh, Death says that he knows that you know they're traveling with Yoff and his family, yes, and names every one of them. So clearly, they're on his list. You know they yeah. they are their their time is over as well, and so. Block, in my estimation, throws the game on purpose so that death can focus on him, and he distracts death with the game and messing up the game and doing all this stuff with the game and talking to death about the game and about, you know, the concept of death and stuff like that in order that Yoff and his family can get away and they're safely brought through the storm. Block says at one point that he just wants enough time, just enough of a reprieve to to do one good act. And he does multiple good acts throughout the movie. Yes, he does. He is yeah. this like the, the thing about Block is he is a good man. Whether you, you know, wh- whether he believes in God or not, as far as men go, this is a good guy. This guy is helping people he's saving people he gives a mercy to to the uh accused witch who i guess we kind of just have to assume that she actually is a witch because she believes that she's seen satan i think she's playing around i mean she does say stuff but i feel like she was playing with him almost like giving in i mean it's up it's indifferent, right? It doesn't there's really matter. There's so but. much that is up to interpretation in this movie, and that's why there are so many of these great characters we've been talking about. Right. Yes, yes, yes. They all res- they all have a worldview, and they sort of represent most, most of what I'm going to say, the Western worldview. Obviously, there's not somebody in there that's a Buddhist, and they're kind of like, yeah, whatever, um, right. about everything. Right. But there's somebody there's somebody for everybody. And all of the characters are admirable in different ways. And all of the characters are awful in different ways yes. as well. Um, yeah. Except maybe for the mute girl who is. Um, well, I, I, uh, I would say the family's innocent. Yeah. The fam- um, I would I guess, say the I guess family's right. definitely innocent. Um, well, the one thing is that Yoth uh, intentionally lies about painting the uh the the wheels because he says i i i only did that so you'd believe my other visions which is again just a funny thing as well to do like you're intentionally doing something that you think is gonna make us believe you and it shadows us with doubt over all of your visions through the rest of the movie (laughs) yeah but it's I don't know. Um, it's hard to say much about this movie that hasn't already been said because everybody's talked about Seven Seal. Yeah. However, I will say that we might be, <laughs> we meaning you, this is your podcast, not mine. You might have the first podcast that is a Protestant Christian podcast talking about uh, the movie because I've seen a couple Catholic podcasts talking about it and a lot of secular podcasts but I haven't seen any Protestants. <laughs> I haven't looked around, but I can believe that. Cause I know like, yeah, a lot of uh, 
Protestant movie podcasts don't really cover a lot of particularly interesting subject matter. I mean, that's part of why I made the podcast myself is because I was like, well, if I want one, then I'll make one myself. But um, yeah, I've been glad to cover it because I I feel like um, part of why we on the podcast don't talk about more serious subject matter or perhaps people tune in to a Christian movie podcast and are bombed with Sindoc because, because we don't actually talk about Christianity a lot is because most subject, most movies don't garner that subject matter. They don't produce that. Most movies aren't about death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> most movies don't talk about interesting things. You think we're going to talk about Christianity with Thor, love and thunder. What? Like, that's just silly. Um, and so like when it comes to something like the seventh seal, like, you can actually do that. And so I've been appreciating this discussion on the topic of death and Christianity. I, I actually think there's room for frustration and doubt in the Christian life. I think, I think, uh, you know, I'm in Job, uh, right now and I love it. It's actually, I've been journaling specifically that, uh, Job is a high proof book and it is easy to read too much of it and miss out, um, because you can get drunk on it. There's a lot to really take in. That's, that's just great. And I've been, more or less convinced on this read through that Job is a stand in for the sinless person who suffers uh, because he does not in his experience is not because of sin. He does not suffering because of sin, even though his friends are confident that that's what it is. And as that continues, like even the more I read it and the more intense his frustration becomes with his friends and the more he clamors for God to just appear so he can, ask some questions so he can make his case or just to understand the situation. Job literally has, uh, I have my Bible right here, so I'm going to labor to flip through it and try and find a particular thing that I really like. It's uh, Job 13. Let's go ahead with verse 13. So I'll just kind of read till I stop because I think it's in like chunks and then he kind of breaks things down. Uh, But this could be arguably considered pretty inflammatory, I think, if you read it and want to think... Some people interpret Job as he's sinless until he opens his mouth too, and then he starts sinning. But I just, I'm not convinced of that. I I think he's actually, and I'll explain that in a minute, but he goes, first, Job 13, 13, keep silent and let me speak. Then uh, speaking to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zoraph, who have all shared their cases and perspectives of how they think he has committed a sin and therefore is suffering. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take in my, in my life in my hands? Though he slay me, talking about God, yet will I hope in him. Again, he's like, though God, he he has been making the case that God has brought this upon him, but God is also the one that can save him, which is actually correct because verses, chapters one and two make clear that although Satan comes to him, to God and, and makes a bet, God is the one who proposes Job. And then again, proposes Job a second time. He goes, I will surely defend my ways to his face, to God's. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now what I have, now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Then he goes, only grant me these two things, O God. So now he's, God's not, God's there, but he's not there. And he, but he's, this is what he's saying he would say. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me, so relent the suffering I'm going through, and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? 
I mean, what are more useless things than those two things, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's he's because he's also argued like, why why do you consider me? I am a temporary life. I'm not here for that long. So why are you so focused on me? Uh, verse 26, for you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. And in that particular sense, he's implying he understands like sins do have consequences, but he's convinced, of course, that in this moment, <laughs> his, current, his current plight is not because of his sins. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watching all my paths. Um, so, so on and so forth. I've gotten to my point, which is it, it is not wrong to have essentially, I would say, Antonius blocks deep frustration of wanting some answers. Now, a criticism of his particular pursuit is he isn't going to a priest. He isn't going to anyone wise. He isn't going to, he isn't surrounded himself with people that can support him. Mm-hmm. Part of the body of Christ, the concept of that, the metaphor of that is that the body of Christ, so other Christians support one another. Now, other Christians are also fallible and prone to sin. And it's important for you to grow in your ability to discern who's healthy for you or not, because they help you discern what's healthy for you. Um, and Antonius just has unhelpful company. He doesn't mm-hmm. have, he can obviously have all kinds of friends. It's important for Christians to have friends who are not Christians mm-hmm. because you get to be a, a joy for them, either in your pursuit of converting them or by being the grace of God to them by being kind. But it is important to have people who can actually give him the answers he, ha- he he's asking for. And now, like I said earlier, there's a unique difference between spending time with my wife and being far away and having a phone call. So his his lamentation of, I just want to hear God. I'm right there too, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Like, I know I would cower in fear like everyone does when they hear God's voice. Um, but like, there is a draw for that. But that's part of why the marriage metaphor in the New Testament is used. The idea of waiting for that moment when the marriage is culminated. Um, we are in this state of patience. It's why you also have pregnancy metaphors of waiting for the child to be born. We are mm. in the birth pains of life right now. And so I, um, I, I, I think that it's valid and viable to have these unique, deeply painful stresses of 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 lamenting the current age you live in and um and i guess i should briefly aside briefly finish on why i think job is continuously sinless <laughs> uh, despite the fact that also he notifies like consequences of sin it's uh in faith we are cleansed by christ and all sins are paid for and forgiven now that doesn't mean we don't still commit sin first john talks about sins that don't lead to death so sins that don't lead to eternal damnation i still commit sin but it's not going to lead to internal damnation because I believe that Christ's death was final and uh, his resurrection will carry me into the new earth. But I don't suffer punishment because of sin, which is what Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad are claiming, which is you committed sin, confess your sin, or else this punishment will continue. Mm-hmm. And there's a unique stress to the fact that, okay, if I'm, my sins are clean, why do I still suffer? Why does badness still happen? Now, I am still reading Job. I've read it many times before, but I'm a human being. I forget things. So I don't really remember how it completely resolves. I know everyone always says, Job complains, and then God tells him to shut up, and then he gets better. It's like, as really reductionist. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but there is something, I think, wonderful about the fact that God weathers with him to let him experience what he's experiencing. And the example of his 
lament is putting Bildad and Eliphaz and uh, Zophar are putting are really character assassinating Job this whole time. Mm -hmm. But the book is really character assassinating, not character, just bringing to light that Eliphaz, Zophar and um, uh, Bildad, their concept of theology and God and faith and and grace is just wrong. And it's really refined. In in the end, I, I trust it will refine them. I can't quite remember. I know a fourth character comes in to say everyone's wrong, but I, uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. So I, I was watching this movie and thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm in Job right now. Cause it just <laughs> feels the same, like that perpetual lamentation of suffering, um, mm. and death and like misery. And, and in this particular case of Job, it's a very mature Christian. I mean, not Christian, very mature Jew. Well, it was actually pre, I think it's dated pre Abraham. I it's, think is what people say. It's, it's like during the, the patriarchs. It is the oldest book of the Bible that we have a copy of. So it's literally like, he's not even a good Jew or Christian. He's just faithful, yes. <laughs> which for me is the term I rather prefer use. I don't really like using the word Christian anyway, but like his faith is so mature. He's like, I know God's doing this to me. I just want him to chill out so I can talk to him. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know it's not because of my sin. I just want him to chill. He's like, everything he says is right. And yet his plight is so similar to Black. It's so similar to uh, so many people. And so anyways, yeah, I I guess I could just say that that's my recommendation because that's what it was going to be anyway, was just read Job with that mindset. But Gosh, what are you, Dan? Are you Dan? You're I was thinking, like, I think like, I'm doing the Bible, Bible stuff. I'm, I'm recommending something biblical on the podcast. It's not a commentary of, of Job, but yes. Uh, but I digress. Uh, it was literally just the scriptural passage of Job. But um, any last words or any final thoughts or any thoughts on what I just shared comparing even Job's lament or oh, like, uh, like, how do you feel about Seventh Seal and the Bible? <laughs> you said a lot, man. Um, I did. I and... really did. Uh, the show notes will look interesting. I don't Melvin know. goes you... on a tirade about Job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, uh, we might have a slight disagreement on Job, but like every Christian has a disagreement on Job. I don't know if anybody yeah, reads it feels, the same. feels something about Job. <laughs> it, is, it is the most, it, it's like the easiest to interpret and misinterpret. Uh, uh, and there's yeah. because there's so much packed in there. It's a poem. It's like more than it's anything. written like a pe a play. Yeah, a poem. It's it's yeah. so it's so dialogue driven. Yeah. It's basically I I envision people on a stage talking to each other with it. G.K. Chesterton called it the greatest religious poem in history, and I think it's he great. might be right. Um, uh, on the seventh seal, um, there's a lot that I could say about it because it's. I'm not saying it's like my favorite movie or anything like that. I've seen this thing once. The next five times I see it, I might be like, that Looney Tunes bit is getting a little old or something like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I certainly yeah. don't think it's a perfect <laughs> film. There are very few very perfect films. And there are less artistic films than this that are yes. more perfect than this. Like Dead Alive, like we talked about. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> you guys were a talking about movie. Jurassic World movies. I think Jurassic Park is a nearly perfect movie. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, this is this is a great movie. Um, it's very, very appropriate. Very good movie. Um, yes. uh, as far as, like, if, if you're a Christian and you have questions about content or something this is from 1957 guys like it's 
sex wasn't invented back then. But yeah, that's right. Sex <laughs> didn't exist. Um, tone is probably the most egregious because um, it is. A, I I was feeling quite miserable at times, and and in the right kind of way. But it was like so. I think that's where like if if you think your child, I mean. I don't know why people always don't show this to a kid. You'll be, yeah, I was like, why I watched an interview where someone, um, cat had wanted to show it to me, but I saw it, uh, separate, but it's an interview with Sam Raimi about evil dead. Would you show your children this? It's like, man, what is, why are children the litmus test for movies? This is so (laughs) stupid. Um, but a teenager, a self-aware 15, 16 year old, would they like this? A smart 13 year old could get this. But because it can be so miserable, if you know your child would find that upsetting, obviously don't show your teenager. But like some teenagers might be fine with it. But this is a, I I can't, I don't know what I want to say about it, man. It's, it's a, it's a very good movie. It's accessible. It's It's just, it is actually much more accessible (laughs) than you'd expect because you expect this. You get the idea that Bergman must be boring. But we just did Stalker, guys, and yeah. that yes. <laughs> can Stalker, be boring for Stalker people. was intentionally boring in certain yes. places. Um, yes. And that's sometimes you got to be bored a little bit watching a movie. It's just what's going to happen. This Part is much experience. more accessible than Stalker. 90 minutes. It's streaming on HBO Max. So if you've got HBO Max, like any good cinephile should, yes, yeah, it's good. You you will uh, you'll be able to watch it. Uh, it's an hour and thirty six minutes, guys. Like an hour and thirty six minutes is like two Marvel movies. Uh, it, no, it's, it's like it's like half of a Marvel movie. It's it's yes. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're if we're doing recommendations, is yours still Joe? Yeah, we can cut into we can cut into recommendations. Yeah, I'll I'll briefly recommend Job again. Yes, uh, recommendations. Job, the book of Job. My particular reading is the retro NIV. I think it's what from 1985 is the NIV. This one I have. Uh, I don't remember when the first NIV was. I know there's ref- refined ones. Like if I you go to Bible Gateway, like their NIV is not mine, which is really upsetting. I like the tone and phrasing of mine. Although I would like to look up why it got revisions because maybe I'm reading something <laughs> that's not helpful. But uh, yeah, the book of Job. And what I've been doing is uh, I recommended months ago, you know, uh, Bible reading with journaling and honest journaling. So if you don't like something, write about why you don't like it and really get honest about it. Do that with Job. I, I've been doing that. And it's gotten to the point where like, I really have to stop reading it because I want to read more. And in fact, I've like, my reading today was Job 11. I read Job 11, I journal. And then like, if you just didn't, if you just read the next paragraph in my journal, it's, I drank deeply of Job. I read up to 15. <laughs> like I just, and then I started journaling about that. And it was really wonderful to just process through like Job's case about like, it's just great. I really love it. And even if you're not, if you listen to this podcast and you're not Christian and this is like the most Christian episode we've had in months. Ever? Um, yeah, ever. Um, since it was a solo project, frankly, although I guess the American gospel, we, no, we mostly talked about the movie. We didn't really talk about the subjects, but anyways, Job is palatable, even if you're not Christian, cause it's fascinating literature and it's an interesting exercise of like, if suffering can exist for those who are righteous, what, what, what do we think about that? And that's really interesting to me. So uh, definitely recommending Job. I guess I'll just have a Bible Gateway link in the recommendation in the show notes <laughs> down there. But what do you have to recommend, uh, Steve? 
I, I thought about this for a while because I, I considered some podcasts. I considered um, a movie not at all like this, uh, some <laughs> kind of movie that is like this. Um, I'm going to go with something that hit me really hard, uh, kind of like this movie hit me really hard um, and deals with some similar themes to a degree. So this so far is one of my favorite things I've seen this year uh, that came out this year. I'm interested. It is on Netflix. So if you've got a Netflix account, you should check it out. It is Norm MacDonald, Nothing Special. Oh, I've seen, I haven't seen it, but I've seen this listed. How is it? I mean, I guess if your recommendation, it's good, but, but how is it? Norm MacDonald is my favorite comedian who's ever lived. He might actually be one of the greatest comedians who's ever lived. Um, uh, for the longest time, I would have said that he is the greatest living comedian. Now he's dead. Uh, I can't say that. Um, but Norm was an incredibly interesting character. This is a special that he shot all in one take on his laptop. Basically, you know, in the case that he died before he was able to actually perform his new Netflix special. And of course he did. Um, so he, this is about 40 minutes to an hour of Norm MacDonald sitting in front of just what you and I are doing, Mel, uh, just sitting in front of his laptop being recorded on his, uh, on his, uh, laptop camera. And he's hilarious. Uh, there's definitely some off color jokes. Um, there are things that I don't like about Norm MacDonald. There are things that, you know, maybe are not appropriate for all Christians. But Norm was a man who just has a type of humor that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. He is an incredible writer. He did things differently his entire life. Uh, His movie career never took off because he was, as I said, one of the funniest men to live and yet was a terrible actor. Um, mm-hmm. and did not work all that well on screen. But this gets you up close and personal with Norm. There are several moments in the middle of his special where he talks about his love for his mom. Uh, he talks about his relationship with God to a degree. Yeah, I think I heard he's Christian, or was, but is. like He was pretty overt about it. Norm had an interesting faith. I, I do personally, and they touch on this a little bit, because the interesting aspect of this is it is a special that then afterwards uh, you have a bunch of Norm's acquaintances talking about him and talking about yeah. the special. And that's a really interesting thing. And they talk a little bit about his faith. Uh, somebody, I believe Dave Chappelle says that he, uh, that once Norm came up to him and he was going to some kind of revivalist church and he said, I didn't, I don't believe any of this, but it makes me feel, it makes me feel good. But there are other quotes from Norm. Um, you can check out his Twitter where on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, he says something like, God Christ, religion, these are the things that matter. Yeah. 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 I really think that the guy was a believer. I, I I think probably he said some stuff that believers ought not to say. I think he did some stuff believers ought not to do. But we're all imperfect. I think God has grace for him. I will say the most impactful thing is um, he has an amazing, hilarious set with 
nobody in attendance. He <laughs> nice. he is just as funny as if he was on stage, perhaps funnier um, because it's just him. And in the end of everything, they play his favorite song, which is a country song called uh, Old Chunk of Coal, uh, which is something that he always called himself. I'm just an old chunk of coal. And... <laughs> I cried, so uh, it, it's. It, I I could have cried with laughter if I'd been paying a little more attention during the actual set, but this is a really impactful thing. I would say that listeners need to need to see this. So check it out. It's on Netflix. I definitely recommend it to you, Melvin. If you've got a few minutes, you I'll know it it's pretty short. So do it. Yeah. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review and subscribing to the podcast. And as mentioned before, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you're opted into a once-a-month movie poll where you decide a movie we discuss on the podcast. There are other unique benefits that come with supporting the podcast, so be sure to check that out at patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier on Patreon. Thank you so much, Mom, Dad, Melanie, Sherlyon, and Thomas. You guys are the best, and your continued monetary support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.